How's it going, Heritage? Doing good? Good, good. Glad to see all of you here. I want to welcome everybody across the network, Bettendorf, men of Kiwani, people who are checking us out online, and of course, Rock Island. I want to welcome all of you here, and I'm excited just to, to be with you and to talk with you a little bit uh, tonight. My name is Josh Howard, and uh, I get to serve as the assistant campus pastor here at the Rock Island campus. And uh, right up front, well, I should just probably say this. I am not going to use a chair this week in the sermon. And for those of you who don't get that joke, go back next week or to last week on our website, check out the video, because Pastor Sean has an encounter with the chair that is just undescribable. But I told him afterwards, if I would have tried that, it would have been different. So no chairs at all this weekend. Uh, who's ready for spring? Oh, me too. And so we are launching a new series that's called Rites of Spring that is landing way in advance of spring. <laughs> it's still really, really cold outside. But do you, any of you have any, like, traditions in the springtime? I, I, I hear a lot of people talk about spring cleaning. Anybody do that? Yeah? Could uh, somebody else something? <laughs> I won't do that. Taxes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that. Thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. So taxes, maybe, maybe for some of you, it's, uh, you know, you get out the lawnmower and you get it all kind of worked up and ready for the spring and summer season. I'm like the least handy person that you'll ever meet. So I pay somebody to do that for me. And, uh, and so there's, there's maybe that, maybe it's like, for some of you, it's like, it's, you've been inside for so long and it's time to maybe get out to a tennis court or go golfing or, or maybe start to run. I know my wife, Melissa, hates the treadmill, and so she's ready just to run outside. Uh, for, for some of you, uh, maybe it has to do with uh, a little game called baseball. I don't know. Any, anybody? So this last Tuesday, four beautiful words, pitchers and catchers reports. And the boys of summer reported to Florida, but nobody reported to Arizona, right? Oh, okay. Cubs cards. There we go. We're already there. All right. But I love baseball. It's been a big tradition of mine throughout my life. I remember in my early 20s, I don't have margin for this anymore, but I used to look at the box scores and keep track of statistics. I just love the spring and spring training and baseball because it, it sort of gives me hope that just a couple more weeks away, we're going to start feeling the warmth again. And uh, so I, I just, I, I cannot wait to feel warm and, and to see green. And, and for me, spring is new life and it's green and it's growth. And, and I just, I, I know all of us kind of feel that. And uh, in the same way that some of us probably have spring traditions, I know that in the church, there are traditions that we lean into on a regular basis. These are traditions that have been passed down from the, the very beginning of the launch of church life. And, and there's just those things that we have used to help connect us into the heart of God. And, uh, and I, you know, I, I kind of did some digging because our title is called Rites of Spring. And I did some digging on the word right. R-I-T-E, just to make sure that we kind of knew what we were talking about. And so I want to just give that to you right now. Here's, here's the, the definition. It's a ceremony or an act or a customary observance. 
Now, that doesn't really help. <laughs> I, I realized very quickly, you can, that can really describe a whole number of things that you can do. And so I really love that our title for this series, for this four-week conversation, is Rites of Spring, because right in our title, there is that, that implication of growth and new life that, that the title of our series actually sets up a guardrail for us that, that says a, a rhythm or a practice or a rite it needs to lead us into deeper connection with Jesus. It needs to help us take a step in our journey. It needs to help, help us grow in our faith or lead us into places where we connect deeper into resurrection life. Healthy rhythms will always, will always lead us into deeper journey with God. And if it doesn't, then we need to maybe take a look at the actual rhythm that we're practicing in or... Maybe we're engaging in it wrong, or we've never really been taught how to engage with it correctly. I mean, that, that really is kind of the elephant in the room. Whenever we talk about rites and rhythms and rituals in the church, that, that sometimes we forget the why behind the what. Sometimes we lose sight of why we do what we do, and then the actual what, the actual ritual gets stale, or we start to go through the motions, and we, we just feel numb when we actually engage in the practice. I've talked with many people here at Heritage, and, and just across my, my own ministry journey, people who came from high church or high ritualistic backgrounds, and, and they just never were taught how to engage with those, those rites and those rhythms. They, they were never really taught, here's the reason why behind the what of what we do and it turned them off and it never connected to their brains and, it, and then it never really connected to their hearts and they just had a hard time uh, because there was no great handholds to help with, with trying to figure out what, what, can, what does this right do and how can we experience all there is to experience within it. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to take a look at four different rites or rhythms in the church, and we're going to begin to unpack exactly how these rhythms can be so beneficial to us as Christ followers and how stepping into them can make a significant difference in our life. And I get the high privilege of talking about communion. Now, if you kind of pull the rest of the staff team and ask them how I feel about communion, they'll tell you in a, a hurry, I love the sacrament of communion. It is so meaningful to me, and so it is an honor to be able to teach on it tonight. Communion was originally established by Jesus with his disciples, which is, you know, one of the reasons why it's been called the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, because Jesus was, was tied up in the origin of this sacrament. If you look to the Gospels, you'll notice that three of the four Gospels contain the, the original Last Supper account. And if you read through all three of them, well, you'll notice little details, little unique bits and pieces in each of the stories that make them all worth reading. But I want, for today's purposes, I want to center in on Matthew chapter 26. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there if you want, turn, click, however you want to get there. But we're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. And I just want to read a couple of verses over us that contain the, the actual meal, the actual sacrament that Jesus establishes for us. Here's how it reads. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. And then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he gave it to them and said, 
each of you drink from it, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And here begins this beautiful and powerful ritual that has just been passed down generation after generation. Almost every thread of Christianity has has practiced communion, and they've done so in fairly similar ways. There's been a couple of exceptions, but, but for me, it is so meaningful to know that when I receive the elements of communion, I am doing so in a way that is very similar to millions of brothers and sisters all across church history who have participated in the same way as I have. And I love that. But at the same time, I understand something about communion, that the familiar can sort of breed this contempt, that that we can grow so accustomed to doing something on a regular basis that we begin to sort of, it loses its edge in us. And so my prayer tonight, my prayer this weekend is that we would begin to see the sacrament, maybe with fresh eyes or, or just to be reminded of why it's so important and to lean into it a little bit later with greater intentionality and greater urgency. To help us do that, I want to sort of go a little Charles Dickens on you, a little Christmas carol, right? Because I think that when you look at at, uh, communion, there is a past, present, and future tense type of, of dynamic or framework that can really help us connect in with the sacrament of communion. And so I want to start with the past, and this is going to be the one that most of us are familiar with. Most of us are going to be familiar with the, 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 the past dynamic. So I'm going to give you the statement, and then we're going to unpack it together. Here's what I think communion can help us with, that it helps us remember the past sacrifice of Jesus. It helps us remember the past sacrifice of Jesus. Now remember the little details that come up in the the Matthew 26 account, that the bread represents the body of Jesus, and it was a a body that Jesus freely offered, that that it was a body that was whipped and shredded and and, and torn and, and pierced by nails, that Jesus gave his very body to be broken and crucified on the cross for you and for me. In the Gospel of John, Jesus himself actually says, I am the bread of life, which is this amazingly powerful reminder in in those moments when we consume that bread that represents the body, that, that the bread of life was broken so that we might find life through him. And that we would actually then become participants in his body, that we, the church, are his body. The the New Testament has references all around about the the body of Christ. It is an important thing for us to latch on to as we receive the elements of communion. Now there's the juice, the wine, the cup, which represents the blood of Jesus. The blood was shed so that our sin could be washed clean so that we could be forgiven. 
Jesus very intentionally in this passage connects his blood with the idea of covenant. Now, if you were with us and you were kind of tracing with us back in January, we were in the Even If series, which was deeply impactful to me. And we we talked a lot about covenant in that series because we talked a lot about Abraham in that series. And we we realized that that covenant was always instituted by the, the spilling of blood through a blood sacrifice. That in the Old Testament, sin was forgiven only through the pouring out of blood. And so here we have this image of Jesus through his shed blood on the cross that he provides the ultimate sacrifice that instantly makes all other sacrifices obsolete and that he is the ultimate. And then when we drink the juice, we remember the power of Jesus's blood to take away our sins. Now, friends, there have been hundreds, thousands of songs that remind us of what happened on the cross. There's just some really, really good ones out there. For whatever reason, though, there was one song that just stuck in my head all week as I began to think about this moment with you. And it's, a, it's an older song. It's a, it's a hymn probably written in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and, and it's called My Faith Has Found a Resting Place. And I, I don't know if you know this, but there's a, just a short chorus attached to this song. I'm going to put it up on the screen because it's beautiful. It says, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Anybody know that song? Anybody? Would you be willing to sing it with me? If I tried, I'm no Brandon or Steve or Luke, all right? Would you be willing to try this with me? Let's give it a shot. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. This is and always will be the core meaning of communion, that the whole sacrament is supposed to remind us of the terrible price that Jesus paid for you and for me. The Apostle Paul says it like this. I love this. He says, every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. Over and over and over and over, generation after generation, every time we step into the sacrament of communion, we proclaim the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And and we proclaim that it is the path to life. It is the path to eternal and abundant life. Thanks be to God for his faithfulness to us. Now there's a term that is used for communion. Some of you may have heard it. It's it's kind of a, it's a liturgical term. And uh, it's kind of an intimidating term. If you don't really know where it comes from, the term is Eucharist. Anybody heard that term before used? Actually, Pastor Beth just used it a couple of weeks ago when we took communion together. And it's, it's a fancy word, and it, you know, it took me a while to kind of figure out what it means, but it's actually really simple and really fitting. It means that we would give thanks to God. That's Eucharist, that we would give giving thanks to God. And it's such a fitting name for a sacrament that takes us back to the cross again and again and again, that highest and deepest and most profound demonstration of love that the world has ever seen. And and for us to remember that the Eucharist is that place where our, our, our gratitude just wells up and we thank God for his generous love. And so whenever you now hear that word, 
Let it just well up your own gratitude and your own soul. And when you receive the elements of communion, that we would give great praise and thankfulness to God for his love and his faithfulness to us. That is the past, <clears throat> the past benefit of communion. But friends, there's, there's a little bit more that we can unpack, and, and I would like to even kind of move to future tense. And I'm going to, again, I'm going to give you the statement, and then we're going to try to unpack it as we go. But here's, here's kind of the next, uh, the, the future tense statement, that communion helps us remember the present community that we belong to. The communion helps us remember the present community that we belong to. You know, just a moment ago, I actually read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, which is written by the Apostle Paul, and he is writing, it's the whole, whole chapter, I would invite you to go take, it, take a look on your own, but, but the whole chapter is about instructions on how to receive communion, and there's just a lot of really good nuggets in there. But I also believe that it contains some instruction that I've heard misused or misinterpreted before. For instance, let me just give you just a, a quick example. Verse 29 in this instruction says, If you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. Now, a lot of people, I, I've heard pastors say that this, you know, this chapter, it's a very individualistic type of instruction. And that basically, the, the way I've heard it said before is that if you have any sin in your life, you better be careful approaching that table. Or if, you, if your hands are dirty while approaching the table, you should maybe be looking up for lightning because he's going to strike you down. Like I've heard that communicated before. And friends, I want you to know that is just simply not true. You look at the original account of, of communion and you remember who Jesus instituted this covenant with, this, this practice, this rhythm. It was with a guy who was going to betray him. It was a guy who was going to deny him. And it was with a, a couple of guys who were going to scatter at the first sign of trouble. Those guys were not perfect when they approached the table. We don't have to be either. But we do need to be aware of our sinfulness as we approach and allow it to be a catalyst for a new way forward. But I, I would argue that this chapter is not talking about individuals at all. It's actually set within the context of a community feel that in the church of Corinth, there was a pretty disturbing thing that was happening within the church where some groups of Christians were taking communion and they were excluding other groups from taking with them. It was happening at different times and it tended to be kind of a rich versus a poor type of thing. And, and it was causing a division that was not at all uh, Reflecting the heart of God for, for what should happen with the sacrament. And so Paul here is actually challenging the Corinthians to put aside any division that would get in the way, put aside anything that would prevent them from taking communion together. In fact, you read verse you know, 29 here, and, and you see that, that one phrase that, that we should eat and drink without, if, if we eat and drink without honoring the body of Christ, that that's when the judgment happens. And notice, we are the body of Christ. And so what Paul is getting at here, the challenge is that, that when we approach the table, we need to sort of have in mind our brothers and sisters in Jesus and, and ask the question, are we honoring the body of Jesus as we approach the table? And are we, are we allowing a dynamic where everybody can approach on equal footing? And I love this because communion 
was never ever designed to be taken alone. It was never ever designed to be taken in isolation. It was always meant to be taken within the context of our tribe, of our spiritual family. And so it offers this really good chance to reflect upon how our spiritual family relationships are going. Because our relationships have a profound effect on how we can actually live out our walk with Jesus. It has a profound effect on on the unity and harmony that can be found within a church body. It has a profound effect on how we can actually carry out the mission, mission and vision of the church. And so there's some questions that should bubble up in your soul as you take the elements. Like, is there anybody that I need to forgive in my life? Is there anyone I need to apologize to? Is there, is there anyone that I need to encourage? Is there anyone that I need to build up or pour into? How are my relationships? How healthy are my relationships? Because friends, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. And communion empowers us as a corporate body. When we partake together, there is something supernaturally energizing about this moment that we are unified and energized to, to receive the elements of communion and then live sent, live according to God's purpose for our lives, that it's a great reminder that we are not in this journey alone and we are not on mission alone. Communion reminds us of this, that we are connected to a body of believers and that is an extraordinary gift and communion just brings that to the forefront for us and helps us to reflect on how healthy our relationships are. So we've got the past, we've got the present, but I'm super excited to share with you about the future tense piece of communion. And I would sum it up by saying this, that communion helps us rejoice in our future hope. The communion helps us rejoice in our future hope. Let me refer back really quickly to Matthew 26, because there is this strange little line in there from Jesus Uh, It's uh, verse 29, actually, where he says this. He says, mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And I'll be honest with you, for the longest time as a pastor, uh, this sentence felt so out of place for me in this whole moment that uh, as a really young pastor, when I would initiate communion with the churches that I've been involved with in the past, I would actually just stop at verse 28 and just not share verse 29 because there, there was no room for it for me. I, I didn't really know how it fit in the dynamic and, and I just kind of let it, I just let it go. And, and I was really quite wrong to do that because Jesus is actually sealing this entire meal with this statement. And if you look at all three of the the Last Supper accounts, all three of them have some type of, of this statement in it. And it's a nod, a very specific nod towards the future. It's, it's a nod towards a very specific meal, actually. Uh, it's, it's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. You can read about it in Revelation. It's that, it's that feast that will launch, launch a new era of eternity where, where God creates this new heaven and this new earth and we will reside with him forever and ever and ever. And this meal will, will kickstart the whole thing. And Jesus, think about this, Jesus gives us permission to think about this. And to reflect on this every time we take the element of communion. 
I remember, uh, this was probably three or four years ago, I was, uh, I was in a seminary journey, and I was taking an online class, and it was all about public worship. And we had to write a position paper for this class that was, it was a bit of an animal because it was all about communion and you had to answer a bunch of different questions about communion and take a stand on each of these questions. And I remember one particular question that I, I wrestled with a little bit and uh, I, I took a stand on it. I put it to, uh, took a really strong stand on it actually. And it has to do with the actual elements of communion. And the question was, you know, Jesus, when he established communion, he established it during the Passover time. And so he used unleavened bread and he used wine to establish this covenant or to establish this practice. And the question was, is it okay ever to sort of move away from those two original elements? And uh, it caused a little frustration for me because, frankly, 80% of the communions that I have ever been a part of use leavened bread in it, the, the wonder bread, so to speak. You know, it's it, just, just there. I don't, I don't eat a lot of unleavened bread in communion. And, and so I, I don't know why. Maybe I was in a mood or, or something, but I took a really strong stand for unleavened bread. And I wrote this really great couple of pages on the fact that you should never use, you know, anything but unleavened bread in communion. And man, I thought I was so smart, right? I, I, I busted out Old Testament theology and I talked about Passover. I talked about how matzah bread even just sort of looks like how Jesus, you know, some of the stuff that he went through on the cross because matzah has piercings and it has burned stripes. And I just, I kind of went to town on this and I was feeling really good going in, turning in my paper. And, and my professor, I'll never forget it. He, he was one of my favorites. And the way that he gave feedback is he actually took out a voice recorder <laughs> and he sort of like read my paper in real time and offered his thoughts verbally on this recorder. And so I had like 25, I'm not exaggerating, 25 minutes of feedback uh, on my paper from this professor. And when he got to that one moment of the stand that I took on the bread, I'll, I'll remember two things distinctly. One, I'm not really as clever as I think I am. Two, he offered this really great framework that has helped me immensely. And I want to share it with you because I think it's beautiful. And I, I just, I love it. And I, I just want to make sure, hopefully you can just hang with me on this because it, I, I just think it's so, so beautiful. And he, he asked me, first of all, to reflect on the fact that communion is actually the middle meal of a trilogy of meals. And I'm going to put this up on the screen, and it's in your notes. I just want you to have everything, right? There's no fill-in or anything here. Just track with me. But communion is the middle meal in a trilogy of meals. And he, he wanted me first to reflect upon, what is the first meal? It's Passover. All three gospel accounts mention Passover as the setting for which Jesus initiated this meal. And so he, he wanted me to begin to dig under the reason why unleavened bread was used in the original Passover. And you may not know the story. It's in Exodus 12. You can look it up on your own. But this is sort of one of the central stories of Israel, you know, being rescued, being, being freed from slavery from Egypt, where they, they were able to take off and run. And there was some supernatural stuff that happened. But there was one particular moment in this account where it clearly says that, they shouldn't use yeast because it was going to take too much time. 
And so built into the, the reason why they, they used unleavened bread was because they were in a hurry. They had somewhere to be. God had a, a rescue plan for them, and he was asking them to move. And so they, they baked in a hurry. They ate in a hurry. They didn't have time for the yeast to rise. They, they, had, they just needed to have something to give them sustenance for the journey. And so in this case, it was a very practical reason for why unleavened bread was used. That's really great. That's good to know. But then my professor said, okay, now think about the third supper in this equation. And think about that marriage supper of the lamb. And think about the occasion when we will enter into whatever this meal is going to look like. And we're going to see Jesus. And we're going to sit down and have this amazing banquet. And he asked me the question, will the same urgency and hurry... Will those dynamics still be in place during that third supper? And the answer is very clearly a no. Because when we enter that supper, all sin is going to be gone. All pain is going to be removed. Everything evil is going to be vanquished. Every slave driver that seeks to exploit and control you will be gone. Uh, Our enemy will be defeated. There's going to be no reason to get up and hurry and run in the middle of the night. There's going to be no reason to look over our shoulder at our enemy. We're going to be able to just sit and bask in the presence of Jesus. And I love this because he, he mentions that maybe, just maybe then, we don't need to use unleavened bread all the time in communion because the practical reason for it is not necessarily the reason that we're going to have in the future. And I, I love this, mainly because I actually really love bread. <laughs> you know, I, 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 Olive Garden breadsticks and, and Texas Roadhouse rolls and the, the cheese bread at, at Red Lobster, oh my goodness, loaded, all loaded down with yeast, right? And carbs, okay? But, but can you just imagine sitting down at this wedding supper, reclining with Jesus, eating bread that took forever to make, basking in his presence, not having to worry anymore, not having to look over your shoulder anymore, and just being with him. I mean, I am 100% in for that. There is so much hope and so much joy in that picture, and Jesus gives us permission to reflect on this every single time we take the elements of communion. Isn't that awesome? The future hope that we have to look forward to, the joy that we have of of just reflecting on what that wedding supper of the Lamb is going to look like. You know, there was something else that my professor said that struck me, uh, and it's going to actually kind of serve as the so what moment tonight. But he talked about how, in theory, you could actually provide both leaven and unleavened bread as an option at communion. Now, I've never seen it done. I have never done it. We're not doing it tonight. But he said, this is, this is something just to think about. But it, it offers sort of this framework of, of how you can invite each other into this sacrament. That you could provide both types of bread and basically just ask the people to choose their own adventure. And I love this because, frankly, there are some of us in this room where you, you actually need some added urgency 
in your life. You need to be reminded of the urgency of the calling that we have in Jesus. That's actually the fill-in here, that, that you, you be reminded of the urgency of our mission. That, that some of us maybe have just fallen asleep in life, and we need a reminder of, of how we need to love people and share Jesus and be on mission and take risks and stand up for, for those who can't stand up for themselves, that, that, that we would just, that we need that urgency. And so maybe some of you, even tonight, as we receive communion, maybe you need to receive the elements with Jesus completely in mind, but with a Passover mindset, one of urgency, one of hurry, one that reminds you that there's still work to be done and to allow it to light a fire underneath of you. Now, the flip side is some of you have entered this room tonight and you are tired. You are weary. You have carried in some pretty significant pain and you have brought it here tonight. Maybe you're dealing with a sickness or a wayward child or depression or maybe it's a, you're at odds with a loved one or a spouse. Some of us just might be running at an unsustainable pace and what you need to do is you need to slow down and be restored. You need to slow down and let God fill you up. So you maybe need to receive tonight communion, Jesus in mind, absolutely, but maybe you need to receive it with a marriage supper mindset for you to stop, to pause, to breathe in the spirit of God, to lay down your heavy yoke and take on the light yoke that God has set aside for you to wear. Now, I think, ultimately, we probably need to, to have both of those things in mind all the time, that we are called to an urgent task, but we cannot run at an unsustainable pace. We have to take time to pause and worship and allow God to love us and fill our tank. And so I think it's great to have sort of all three of these meals in mind as we receive these elements together. Ultimately, Communion is a means of grace that God uses to spiritually nourish our soul. That these elements are actually spiritual nutrients that, that just help us in our own soul care. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. You know, I, we are, it would be weird to kind of preach a sermon on communion and not actually participate and communion. So we're going to do that tonight. I'm super excited about it. In fact, at this moment, I'm going to invite our host team to just go ahead and get in place. These are across our networks. These are the men and women that help us serve the elements to us, and they're going to get in place. And while they are, I want to just give just a couple of specifics about communion at Heritage. First of all, I want us just to remind us, so we, we practice open communion. Uh, here at Heritage, which means you, you don't have to be a member of our church. You don't have to be a member of the Wesleyan tribe in order to participate with us tonight. If you're a guest with us and you're a believer in Jesus, we want you to practice. We want you to partake and receive tonight with us. And if that doesn't, if you're not a believer in Jesus, that doesn't describe you. You're still on a journey of, of searching. Just let the tray pass you by. It's okay. No one's going to look at you any different. It's all right. But we, we want to create space for us to receive as a body together. One of the other things you're going to notice is that as the trays pass by in a few moments, that there are, uh, there are double stack cups. And we want to make sure that you reach in and get both of those cups. 
the bottom cup contains the bread, the top cup contains the juice. And uh, if you need a gluten-free option, uh, it's in the back, uh, uh, the back of the worship centers. And uh, we just want to set up this time. We want to create some space for you to just be able to linger over the elements. And so you're going to be receiving communion on your own. Uh, we're going to give you a couple of minutes. We're going to have some, some places where, where uh, some music's going to be happening. We're going to be able to sing and worship and just lift our voices together. But we want you to be able to receive the elements on your own. And I would just encourage you to take this time and reflect upon the past sacrifice of Jesus that he broke, that he allowed his, his body to be broken and that his shed blood led to the forgiveness of your sins. I pray that you would reflect upon the present community that we are wrapped up in to give thanks for it, but to reflect upon your own relationships within this body. And finally, I would just encourage you to latch on to that, that hope that's built into the future tense of communion. That there is a wedding supper of the Lamb and, and Jesus is waiting to share a magnificent meal with us. And that there is hope because we have aligned ourselves with Jesus. And so I'm going to just take a moment to seal the time and pray over us. And after I pray, the ushers are going to come. Remember, you're taking the elements on your own. And let's step into the Eucharist where we give thanks to God for his faithfulness to us. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love, the love that was so clearly demonstrated on the cross. I thank you that you paid the price for our sin, that you served as the, the sacrifice to abolish all sacrifices, that you gave yourself for us. May we never take that for granted. And as we get ready to receive these beautiful elements, may we not only reflect on your love, but also then be positioned to take that love with urgency into the world. But to remember that there are times when we just need to pause and soak in your love. That we need to pause and remember the hope that we have in you. And so I just pray for my brothers and sisters tonight across all of our locations. I pray, God, that you would meet with them in a very special way through this means of grace, this sacrament that you have given to help us remember your faithfulness. We love you. We thank you for loving us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.